Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another in our podcast series on the social determinants of health and the intersection with chronic disease. We are here today joined by Charles Brown, who is the founder and managing, managing principal of Equitable Cities, which is a nationally known urban planning policy research and multimedia firm that works at the intersection of transportation, health, and equity. He serves as a senior researcher with the Alan M. Voorhees Transportation Center and also an adjunct professor at the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy. Both of these organizations are housed at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Charles is a national leader on urban planning and in the built environment and strategies designed to increase physical activity, safety, and social connectedness. His recent and notable contributions to research and practice include understanding barriers to biking and walking for women and minorities, analyzing the impact of crime on walking frequency and propensity, centering and prioritizing equity in transportation planning and decision-making, analyzing barriers to accessing parks and open spaces, and serving as a consultant and advisor to Smart Growth America, the National Transit Institute, the Federal Transit Administration, the Federal Highway Administration, and CDC's Walkability Action Institute. He recently spoke to the members of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors about his concept of arrested mobility. We're excited today to have a conversation around these ideas and explore them further with him so that we might incorporate them and his insights into our portfolio of strategies and responses to the social determinants of health and explore how we as staff in chronic disease sections across the country might be able to impact them in a positive way. So thank you, Charles, for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, you know, what's interesting is uh, if you, you could talk to us about in the audience about this concept of arrested mobility, because uh, in a lot of ways, that notion of arrested development and the um, the barriers that put are put in place by social structures, economic structures, and law enforcement structures and other things uh, really prevent uh, the advancement of the health and economic uh, interests of large members of people of color and the communities of color across the, the country. So um, can you tell our audience a bit more about what arrested mobility is? Yeah, so in terms of context, there are many organizations across the country as well as advocacy groups. And I'll even throw in there, you know, CDC, NACDD, you know, who all have a goal to increase physical activity uh, among the population. Uh, many of them have developed a series of sort of equity strategies in hopes that in getting everyone to be more physically active, uh, black and brown people and low-income people will also be active. So in thinking about that, um, I am racialized uh, and I identify as a black male. And I sort of wanted to kind of challenge or provide insight into why that goal may not be as feasible as one may think. And so the reason I bring that up is because arrested mobility, the sort of theory I have with this assertion, it asserts that black people and other minorities as well have been sort of historically and presently denied by legal and illegal authority, the inalienable right to move, to be moved, or to simply exist in public space. And because they cannot move, be moved, or exist in public space, this has resulted in um, these adverse social, political, economic, and health effects 
that are widespread, preventable, and intergenerational. And so the way arrested mobility manifests itself is via three specific ways. One is through the most known way, which is law enforcement, uh, police officers at the federal, state, and local levels. The second way, which most people may not consider to be a form of policing, but um, I do consider it to be an extension of policing, and that is policy. So when you think about policy, you think about zoning, racial residential segregation, you think about disinvestment, all of those things through policy have arrested the mobility of people, not only physically, but also socially as well. And then lastly, the other third formal, uh, the third way in which our mobility is arrested is via the sort of self-deputized non-Hispanic white citizens who feel like due to their sort of historic connection and relationship to both law enforcement and policy, they too can police the behavior of black and brown people in this country. And so when you consider the trifecta of this sort of policy, the police and these self-deputized um, white citizens, what manifests from that is arrested mobility. And from the mobility standpoint, there's the physical mobility that's being arrested. So whether one is biking, walking, taking public transit, seeking ride share, or hopping a micro-mobility device, their mobility is arrested. Um, and then because their physical mobility is arrested, their opportunities for advancement in society from a social or an economic standpoint is also indirectly arrested. So that's the whole concept in short of arrested mobility. And it's work that I've been working on now for a number of years and am excited to share with those in the health field because finally there's um, this sort of momentum in the health field where they're starting to acknowledge the role that the built environment plays on people's uh, behavior, whether we deem them risky or not, and then the role that the institutional and social inequities play on or play in the creation of the built environment. So I think this concept of arrest and mobility is, is forcing us to move further upstream than downstream. And not only am I interested in helping people learn more about its impacts, but I also want to arrest people's consciousness at this moment so that they can pause and not continue with the work that we've been doing for generations now, because the unfortunate outcome of that may be that we perpetuate the inequity, we continue to create the inequities um, that we've always created in society among black and brown people. So I'll pause there. Well, that's a, a really great way for us to start. And I, I think that I you know, really want to underscore for those members of our audience who are working in chronic disease prevention and health promotion, uh, who want to make physical activity more a part of the life of everyday, the everyday life of Americans, uh, there really is a huge obligation on them to think about the barriers that stand in the way of all people, but particularly people who uh, live in among communities of color that face these barriers to really realize this goal of more complete uh, participation in physical activity and more complete uh, utilization of transportation solutions uh, to get them across uh, the community in order to access economic opportunity for themselves. You know, one of the things that I'm reminded of is that, you know, when the tobacco control movement started in the United States, we, we like to point to 
The Surgeon General's report in the mid-1960s pointing out that smoking definitively caused cancer. And this really reversed a long trend in American society where more and more people were smoking. And so more than 50% of men were smoking at that time. And I think 30, 35% of women had begun to smoke by that point. And those numbers reversed once people began to realize that smoking could kill them. Uh, and so public health engaged in a large uh, public education campaign to try to tell people to stop smoking. Uh, it wasn't until policy uh, began to be advocated like taxes and uh, quit lines were made available that we really were able to bring these numbers down much more sharply because the only people who were able to access tobacco cessation who were able to quit smoking tended to have higher levels of education they tended to be wealthier they tended to be white and so what we've observed in the data is that smoking prevalence is in many states uh, in the single digits or in the low teens among white populations but they're much higher in the african-american community uh, or in the Latino community. And we certainly see that in Colorado. And so I think it's really important for people who are engaged in efforts like Miracle Walks, Vision Zero, or Active People Healthy Nation to think about why just simply telling people to do it uh, isn't, isn't enough and that they have to sp play uh, sp specific attention to the needs of populations of color. What are your concerns with uh, initiatives such as those um, that, that, you know, just sort of assume all groups are the same. What special actions can public health take uh, to make sure that we recognize that in real, you know, in an effort to realize equity, uh, we really have to extend specific efforts far beyond simply public awareness? Yeah, so I would start by saying, I think a lot of it is or boils down to you don't know what you don't know. And so many of these organizations, and we're not you know, pointing at any particular organization when we say this, but they like diversity. In any system or organization that isn't diverse, I feel is inherently biased. The issue with these systems being biased in the context of America is that the default of bias is usually whiteness or addressing the concerns and the considerations and needs of whiteness because that's the dominant power, power for the dominant sort of culture at the moment. And so one way to kind of help to overcome this is to diversify the boards of these organizations, to diversify the staff, and to diversify the partners and those who they also collaborate with to address these issues. I've been fortunate enough to serve on boards at the national level, such as America Walks. And one example of how this sort of relationship in my presence there change how America Walks does business is through the sort of co-creation of the Walking Towards Justice webinar series that we put together. Prior to that, America Walks may have made statements about the importance of equity, et cetera, but when they decided to really diversify their board, they were now sort of tasked with listening to and responding to and reacting to what the board members of color thought to be the present day issues. And so this sort of Walking Towards Justice webinar series allowed us to have very timely, very frank conversations about the ways in which Black people's mobility had been arrested through policy, through policing, and through the self-deputization of white citizens. We didn't call it arrested mobility at the time, but what we were pointing out is that there are a multitude of barriers that the general public may not know about. And so that is a result of 
proximity or the lack of proximity in relationships to people of color, but it's also a result of the fact that we focus heavily on the quantitative data and not the qualitative data of people's lived experiences. And we do a poor job as professionals in engaging with these black and brown and low-income populations who've been underserved. So increasing that representation, I think, is huge. Um, hosting listening sessions, you know, with your stakeholders or just the public in general. Um, and then lastly, just being courageous. Listen, the people who run these organizations are very bright. Many of them have the social networks where they know that these ex these experiences are are valid and that these th things are true yet they lack the courage somehow to speak boldly and confidently about what these black and brown communities are experiencing so with our white allies we really need them to just be more courageous and i did a sort of tweet um, I, I put on twitter i asked the question right when george floyd was killed what is preventing in the planning profession my white brothers and sisters from speaking up. And I was overwhelmed with the responses, but I really appreciated hearing that some of them fear for their own jobs because they felt they too, as white people, would be going against the dominant power structure. Some of them thought that um, it was just better to assimilate and go with the status quo. Um, people felt that they weren't smart enough. They didn't have enough information to fight on behalf of black and brown people. And then a, a lot of them talked about the lack of relationships they have with these populations as well. And so I think what is true is that we've all been uh, tricked. We've been miseducated in many ways. And now what is time, it's, it's time for us to unlearn what we've learned and to really focus on what the facts are. And the facts show that the barriers that exist among black, brown and low income people are, are much different than the barriers faced by the dominant culture. So there's a lot in that, uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful. I think that we can certainly overcome. One of the things that I think is uh, so interesting and compelling about this argument is this notion that connects uh, both physical mobility uh, and its connection to active living and health, but also physical mobility and its connection to economic opportunity. Can you remind our audience or inform our audience uh, who don't know how transportation systems as currently designed arrest the mobility of black and brown people in this country? Yes, and before I get to the sort of more active modes beyond the person, um, usually when you speak about transportation, and a lot of my graduate students um, are aware when I say this, I want to first start with the person. So the first thing you want to talk about in being mobile is the fact that some of us are able to physically walk or roll to a place. In the context of arrest and mobility, that is a barrier. That, that is a problem or an issue because as people of color, our very movement simply walking within a space leads to us being over-policed by the three uh, forms of policing that I mentioned, law enforcement, self-deputization of white citizens, and then policy. So we're physically locked into an area of town, spatially, where we can only exist east of this interstate or west of this interstate or north or south of this interstate, which was put there, by the way, to destroy um, these thriving black and brown communities. So we can't just simply exist. And then when we go to some of the more active modes, when we think about biking, usually we are disproportionately 
more likely to be uh, police receive a ticket, a fine or harassment while biking. If we are taking public transit, um, our mobility is, re- is arrested due to the fact there are not being quality and frequent transit options in our community. And then once we are on transit, we are policed our physical bodies in a way that are not similar to our counterparts. Then when we're trying to hop a ride share or catch a, a taxi, it's more likely that we have to wait longer to get a ride. And then once we get a ride, um, the women in our populations are driven much further away. Um, their trips are much longer than, than men are. And so it manifests itself across all the different modalities. And it's most present, like I said, in the policing and then in the policy, which says that we're not even gonna invest resources in your community to improve your conditions to bike, walk, drive, take public transit, et cetera. So those are the ways in which it manifests itself. And to a person who is racialized as Black and identifies as Black, um, I've seen it and I can't unsee it. And trust me, there are days that I wish I can unsee it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the things that you talked about is the importance of looking then at the infrastructure. Um, Obviously, uh, the history of segregation in this country has confined communities of color to particular neighborhoods, particular parts of urban uh, arenas, and said, you must reside in these places. It's been done through segregation outright. It's been done through land ownership covenants. It's been done through redlining and a variety of other policies. Um, And then the transportation systems that are overlaid over these very often don't uh, put in place opportunities to um, break down those barriers that are then created. I know in in many cities, uh, light rail systems are, are really designed as commuter systems to allow opportunities for white people to live outside of the city, but then to commute into them. Uh, rather than to move across urban boundaries uh, or to move in in other directions. Uh, Can you talk about what our society could do with infrastructure currently to reverse the problem of rest of mobility? Yes, from an infrastructure standpoint, one, we need that acknowledgement. Um, I think what you said, you spoke about it in a way where I wish all people knew knew that. I I think there's there's misinformation out there. People would probably call that Uh, in the dominant culture, a a sort of conspiracy. Uh, But that's facts. What you just said are are indeed facts. Uh, We design around the peak hour, and we know who is traveling most during the peak hour, whether it's transit, driving, biking, et cetera. Most of these systems are serving the needs of the white dominant society. And so one of the ways that we can kind of reverse this is one through the acknowledgement, which is why arrested mobility is about talking about the ways in which we've been over police, but also to arrest people's consciousness at this moment, to sort of hope that they will pause and consider that these are the reality. Once you are aware that this is the reality, like I said earlier, I can see and now I can't unsee. Once you can't unsee, what you have to start doing is sort of advocating for, uh, I would say up to the level of reparation style infrastructure investments in black and brown communities. And so with these infrastructure investments, we need more bicycle facilities and in bringing bicycle facilities to our neighborhood, we need both protected bike lanes as well as bicycle paths that serve a dual function, not only to get us to and from work, but also allow us the opportunity to be physically active. Because when you look at the data, 
a lot of black and brown and low-income communities are not looking for these modalities to get to and from a job. Many of them want them to be healthy and to enjoy the opportunity to exercise freely and safely with their families. So that's a piece that is important. The second piece is we need more pedestrian infrastructure. We need sidewalks. There's a, uh, a lack of sidewalks in black and brown and low-income low communities compared to, to others. And then going back to biking too, it's important that we have secure places to store and lock our bicycles because in black communities, um, people have their bikes stolen on average of a three plus times um, over the course of their life. So, and this is based on what I've heard from some of the people in my research. So we need a safe place to store it as well, because when you think about this may be their primary mode of transport, getting their bicycle stolen really impacts this sort of uh, income and the opportunities that one in that home may have to get to and from work and make a living for their families. And then lastly, I'll just go to public transit. Um, we have to work against this sort of um, stereotype of public transit being almost like welfare in society. People look down on public transit. Um, we have to see public transit of being this sort of empowerment tool that it can be for black and brown people, getting them safely to and from modes. I would even argue that of the modes, public transit has the greatest potential because it has the potential to move more people more frequently, more rapidly to and from a location. So it's time we reverse a lot of these stereotypes and these narratives and really invest into the infrastructure uh, of these places. And no, not all people are concerned about gentrification happening. I think now these talks about bike lanes, investment in infrastructure being or leading to gentrification is simply a way for people to not invest in these communities. Um, so one of the things that uh, you know I think about when I, I think about the self-deputization of whites uh, is it seems to me that this is a manifestation of racism, uh, implicit bias, and prejudices that are formed from the consumption of news media, entertainment media. Uh, there was a story recently I, I read on the internet about a, a Latino grandfather who was playing with his, uh, his uh, grandson who um, looks white and he was reported, he was playing on his front porch with, uh, with his grandson and he was reported, you know, the police were called uh, because his neighbor suspected him of kidnapping uh, the child, um, and you know, just sort of what that reveals around people's assumptions and their their biases. What can public health do uh, to change this impulse in the white community uh, to police the behavior of black and brown people when they're even on their their own front porches? Yeah, one, I go back to the awareness piece, becoming more aware that these these are the realities of of black and brown people in this country. The second thing public health can do is not think so much about uh, the, well, I don't want to say don't think about the individuals, but um, they're not really studying racism and the impacts of racism in the way that I think they should be. You know, in this public health space, there are talks about moving further upstream, but I'm not seeing enough research done, enough focus groups organized to really hear how moving further upstream towards the root cause um, 
and identifying that root cause, which we all know is racism, how it's really impacting the health, um, the politics, the economics, and the social lives of black and brown people. Like, I don't see those studies. If they exist, they're not making their way into the transportation and the mobility space, which is where I think more collaboration is needed. We need these sort of multidisciplinary teams to be formed to talk holistically about what is happening in the environment. Uh, there's a great book that I'm reading now called Inequality, which was written by uh, a medical professional. And it was really touching. And it was really, um, I felt happy to hear him say he sort of um, was falling short when he was focused on the individual behaviors and how also individuals were more likely to have disease and et cetera, based on lineage, genealogy and biology, et cetera. But then he discovered the environment and the role that the environment was playing on people's health. Public health, again, needs to move further upstream to look at the built environment, team with transportation, um, sociologists, sociologists and others to kind of understand how all of this is, is, is impacting people's lives. So we need a more holistic approach as opposed to the sort of siloed approach we've been taking across our professions in the past. Another issue uh, that uh, is, is sort of one of these pillars, um, sort of the three legs of the stool of arrested mobility uh, is the role of law enforcement uh, to police black and brown communities and to keep them in certain geographic spaces uh, and prevent their trans position out of those spaces. Uh, public health and police don't work together very often. How can public health advance change that addresses the ways that police can inhibit black and brown mobility? That's a really great question. Um, it's not an excuse to public health to say that historically they have not worked with police. Once you've identified a sort of, let's look at COVID-19. COVID-19 affected my family personally, but it also affected my family more broadly as the uh, disproportionate amount of black and brown people were dying across this country. When this pandemic hit, all of the resources were mobilized to address it. When you look at law enforcement and the role in the history of law enforcement and how it has impacted the lives of black and brown and low-income people in this country, I don't want to falsely equate it to a pandemic, but to many black and brown people, they're very comparable. And so if we have the health agencies responding in the way that they should have to COVID-19, we need them to respond in that same visceral way to enforcement and the impacts that it is playing on our everyday lives. Because we can't be healthy, we can't exercise, we can't move, we're not gonna have the health outcomes that they're seeking uh, for us to have. And so this goal of having more people be physically active won't happen if public health doesn't stand up and speak courageously about what role policing is playing on our everyday lives. So that's where that courage needs to come in at. That's where this getting from what we haven't done historically piece needs to get in at. This is everyone's business, this law enforcement piece and how it's impacting people. And if public health isn't present at the table, the future isn't bright because I think they're the ones who have the trust of most people in this country. When you compare them to law enforcement, transportation, et cetera, 
I think they can lead the charge by bringing law enforcement to the table to say, let's understand the relationship and the role and the impact you're having on these communities. Let's work collaboratively to figure out how we can overcome it. So that's what I would sort of uh, encourage them to do. I think that's that's really great. I, I think we have to have those conversations with law enforcement. It strikes me also, we need to start getting people to think differently about many of these ideas. I mean, if you think about just the word law enforcement, uh, you know, that says that their priority, their objective is to simply enforce laws without regard to whether or not those laws are just, whether or not those laws are the right laws, uh, when those laws were passed and what the motivation behind those laws are, rather than public safety. Um, you know, that seems to me a public health approach is that law enforcement really should be part our partners in public safety and we should think about them as our partners in public safety and then we should think about a very broad definition of what safety is and what does safety mean and how is safety constructed um, for a white person uh, they may be focused on safety from crime uh, but for the you know african-american population it may be both safety from police and safety from crime and right. that those those are equally important objectives uh, to them. And having that narrative and that construction started with public health and law enforcement members of the community uh, of the police um, world is really critical, it seems. Absolutely. And then I would add to, you know, safety from traffic violence, because we are dying disproportionately when it comes to vehicle and pedestrian crashes. And so, I mean, you, you hit it on the head. When I go in communities across this country, and I talk to black and brown people, and I ask them about this idea of safety, they speak right away to this duality of safety. You know, well, they talk about, hey, sure, we don't want to be hit by a car, but we also don't want to be physically uh, harmed or assaulted while walking neither. And then, of course, they do touch on issues of, of police harassment. Um, but many in the transportation space for a very long time only considered safety to mean protection from being hit by a car. Um, and that's unfortunate because when we do that, we're not taking into consideration the needs and the concerns of black and brown people. And so that's why diversifying these spaces bring about new questions, new ideas, um, and this sort of creative energy around how we can best solve these problems. Charles, you've really uh, started a huge dialogue, a hugely important dialogue on this topic uh, in this country, and we need to have more of these conversations. Um, we've run out of time today, but I want to thank you so much for uh, the generosity um, in sharing these ideas with our audience and, and advancing them and promoting them and your leadership in this space. It's so vitally important, and we are all so much the better for it. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Um, people want to be a part of this conversation, feel free to reach out, reach me on Twitter at ctbrown1911, that's the year 1911, or you can reach me by email at charlesbrown at equitablecities.com. Great. And with that, uh, we will put a link to Charles's uh, recent uh, presentation to the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors membership on the concept of rest of mobility if you want to watch his presentation in more depth there. And I believe that you are also trying to um, fundraise uh, for this effort. And uh, are there ways that people who want to advance these concepts and promote them can support this effort, Charles? Yes, they can reach out to me directly on Twitter or at that email. Uh, what we're currently doing is two things are happening. One, I'm writing a book on the topic. 
and then two, we're putting together a documentary or a docu-series which outlines this sort of concept of arrest and mobility. Um, right now, I would love for people to donate. Um, it means so much to me that I'm putting up a large portion of my own funding uh, in support of this. I believe this much. I believe so strongly about it uh, that I'm also willing to invest in it. So if people are willing, they can reach out to me by email and um, I thank them in advance. Great. Well, thank you so much again uh, for your time, Charles, and uh, God bless you and um, all the best for the future. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Health To Be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.